today we are starting a new series for the season of Lent called Before the Cross. Uh, Lent, of course, is the time of year where we celebrate for e- we uh, we prepare to celebrate Easter weekend, which begins with Good Friday, where we remember the cross, and then ends on Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection. And so I thought a good way to prepare for that weekend would be to look at what Jesus said to his disciples right before Good Friday, right before he went to the cross. In the Gospel of John, uh, a lot happens on that Thursday night before Good Friday. So you have Jesus' arrest, uh, well, you have the Last Supper, and then you have Jesus' arrest. And in between that, there's a lot of red letters on the page, if you have the kind of Bible that puts Jesus' words in red letters. And uh, this is what's sometimes called the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17. And I think it deserves special attention. You know, if uh, you had a friend or family member that knew they were going to die within 24 hours and they were still lucid, you'd probably want to pay special attention to what they said in those next 24 hours, right? Um, When we know death is about to happen, we tend to say what really needs to be said. And this is what Jesus said right before death. So over the next six weeks, we're going to try to cover all of Jesus' farewell discourse, which is a lot. Uh, We're going to need to do about 20 verses a week. Um, So just as a warning, this might feel a little bit more like a, a Bible study than a sermon as we do this, because we're just going to take it verse by verse and try to learn as much as we can each week, taking about 20 verses at a time. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to John 13, starting in verse 21. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the chance to learn from your words, and we pray that you would just help us to attend to you right now, Uh, help us to be open to whatever it is you want to say to us. Lord, help us to put away distractions and um, center our attention on you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just to give some context... Jesus, right before this, looked at Judas, the disciple that he knew was going to betray him. And he said, what you've got to do, go and do quickly. And Judas went off into the night to go and tell the authorities where Jesus was and to set off the chain of events that would lead to Jesus being crucified. And then, after Judas goes out, He turns to the rest of the disciples and he begins to teach. And this is what he says. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. 
Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, you might not know that when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. Uh, I won't get into right now why he calls himself the Son of Man. That would, that would take a little while. But just trust, whenever Jesus says the Son of Man, he's saying me. And uh, so what he's, what he's saying here is, I am going to be glorified, and God will be glorified through me. Now, what does he mean by that word glorified? What does it mean for someone or something to be glorified? To be glorified is to have magnificence be revealed. That's the way I think we should think about that. So, when Jesus says, the Son of Man will be glorified, he means, now my magnificence will be on display. My awesomeness my splendor, will be revealed. Now, that should lead us to ask, why would Jesus say that now? Because, you know, Jesus is about to be crucified. He is about to be killed. And crucifixion was considered to be the most humiliating of deaths. You were stripped naked. You were scourged, hung up on that cross, put to shame. And yet Jesus says that what is about to happen is going to be his glorification. His magnificence is going to be on display. Now why? Why would that be? The only answer that I think makes any sense is because God's perspective on what is glorious is love. That's what's really glorious. You know, in our twisted view of things, we tend to think that the most glorious person is the person with the most wealth, the person with the most power, the most physically beautiful person, the most talented person, the most popular person, the person that gets the most followers on TikTok. But as far as God is concerned, what true glory looks like is a person who is willing to give of themselves for the sake of others. Right? Someone who is able to love. That is real magnificence. That is real awesomeness. Do we share God's perspective on what is truly glorious? Jesus dying on a cross is glorious because it is the supreme demonstration of love. Right? Because Jesus is God in the flesh, humbling himself to the point of suffering and death for our sake, for our dying for our sins on our behalf, right? So the cross brings glory to Jesus, and because Jesus is God in the flesh, it brings glory to God, because the cross shows what God is like, and it shows that God is supremely, magnificently, awesomely loving. Let's keep reading. Verse 33. I guess I I, I accidentally told you guys to go to verse 21. We're starting in verse 31. Uh, Verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. Where is he going? He's going to death. He's going to the cross. So Jesus is saying, it's not time for you guys to die yet. Your time has not come. Now, Peter is confused. Jesus has talked about how he's going to have to die, but Peter is having a lot of trouble accepting that. You know, Peter has expectations for what the Messiah is going to do, and it doesn't include dying on a cross. And so he asks, wait, 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 where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus says again, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Which is basically saying, you're not going to die now. You will eventually, but not yet. Now is not the time. And at this point, Peter realizes, okay, Jesus is talking about dying. And he says, well, I want to die with you now. I will lay down my life for you now. But Jesus knows what's in Peter's heart. Right? He knows that it's all bluster. He's, he knows that he is not spiritually in a place yet where he can back up those words. And so he tells, them, he tells them the truth. He says, Peter, before the morning arrives, you are going to deny you even know me three times, which is what happens. And in the middle of all this, Jesus gives a command. He calls it a new command. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Now here's something to consider. Why is that a new command? Because way back in the third book of the Bible, Leviticus, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a new command, love your neighbor. What makes it new? What makes it new is that, that part, as I have loved you. See, Jesus is defining here what it looks like to really love your neighbor. And what he's saying that it looks like is him dying on the cross. Right? As I have loved you, you must love one another. In other words, you should be willing to lay down your lives for each other. Just as I am willing to die for you and to humbly wash your feet, even though I am the, the Lord of creation, so you should be willing to serve one another in humility. And this, Jesus says, is how everyone will know that you're really my disciples. That you love like that. That you have the same kind of magnificent, awesome, self-giving love that I'm about to display on the cross. That makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I think if we're honest, it should make all of us uncomfortable, right? 
My goodness. You know, most people, if they hear someone say, we should love one another, they're not going to disagree with that, right? Everyone, oh, yeah, we should love one another, definitely. But the kind of love that we have in mind is often a kind of a shallow kind of love, right? It's a general feeling of goodwill, being tolerant, saying please and thank you. But if that's as deep as our love goes, that kind of love can disappear. It can vanish the moment that we feel offended or inconvenienced or mistreated. But if we're supposed to love like Jesus has loved us, then we're called to the kind of love that's willing to be inconvenienced, that's willing to suffer, that's willing to forgive. That is a really tough command. That fills me with trembling. (laughs) That that is what Jesus calls us to. And, And yet, he says, people will know that you are my followers if you practice this kind of love. For each other. That is what is going to distinguish you from the rest of the world. That's really tough. You know, sometimes I, I fear that the church, at least, you know, the church in America, that's the church I know, is becoming known more for our defensiveness than our love. It's hard to really love one another and the world when we feel afraid and defensive. I was listening to a, a podcast recently, and uh, I can't remember what, which podcast it was or who was being interviewed, but he said, I think that the church in America is struggling from what I call cornered animal syndrome, which means we feel like we are trapped and afraid, and we just have to defend, right? Defend our views, defend our institutions, defend our ways of doing things. But when our posture is always defensiveness, defensiveness, people can't see the love, right? Jesus wasn't very defensive, if you read the Gospels. It's kind of amazing to me. You know, when people leave, he doesn't go chasing after them. He doesn't, where are you going? (laughs) When when he says something that he knows some people are going to have a hard time hearing, he just says, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says the truth and he lets it land on people's hearts and minds, however it's going to land. He's not defensive. And of course, when he goes to the cross... He doesn't even try to put up a case for why he shouldn't go. He's questioned, and he keeps his mouth shut. He's not defensive, but he is the epitome of love. We've got to be careful. There's a place for defending the truth, absolutely. But if our posture is always cornered animal syndrome, defense, 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 then we're We're not going to be showing the world that we are Jesus' disciples, that we love the way that he loves. Let's keep reading. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I love the reassurance in those words. Jesus is saying, I know this is going to be hard for you, me going away, me being crucified. But don't let it shake you. Keep trusting. You know, when he says, you believe in God, believe also in me, we, we should hear him saying, you know, if you trust God, you should trust me too. Because I am God in the flesh. And he says, I am, I am going away, and there's a purpose in me going away. What is the purpose? I am preparing a place for you in God's house. I'm preparing a place for you in God's house. What does that mean? Well, I don't think Jesus is saying that, you know, those carpentry skills that he learned in his earthly life, he's going to take them up to heaven and he's going to, you know, build something for us there. I, I think Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. So what is he saying? What he's saying is he is going to make a way for us to live with God forever. When the disciples heard that phrase, the Father's house, what it would call to mind for them is the temple in Jerusalem. Because the temple in Jerusalem was where God's presence was said to reside. And specifically, there was one part of the temple where God's presence was said to to dwell so powerfully. It was called the Holy of Holies. And only one person was allowed to go in there. And I think they only went in once a year, is, is the high priest. And it was said that if anyone else went in there, or, or you went in you know, with the wrong attitude, without doing the right things, you could just be struck dead right on the spot because your sinfulness could not dwell in the presence of that holiness. And yet, Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a room for you in there, in the holy of holies. You know, no, no one would even dream of living there, never mind going in there, right? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you there. And I, I don't think he's saying I'm literally going to make a room for you in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But he's saying, I'm going to make it so that you can go into God's presence forever and make your home there. I'm going to make it so that your sin is not going to prevent you from being in that place, right? From having union with your creator, the source of everything that is good and beautiful. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus dies on the cross, we're told that that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two. And, and what that means is that what Jesus was saying here happened. He prepared the place Right? He opened the way to the Holy of Holies. Now we're not cut off from God's presence. Now our sin doesn't separate us because Jesus has prepared a place for us by dying on the cross. He opened the way to the Holy of Holies.
You know, it can be hard to comprehend exactly what happened on the cross. It can be hard to understand how that all works. I've thought about it for a long time. I even took a class in seminary just on that, and I still feel like I'm learning about it. And I like to say you don't have to understand it completely in order to put your faith in it, just like you don't have to know exactly how your car works in order to drive it, right? But what Jesus is saying here is when you think of me dying on the cross, think of that as me preparing a place for you in God's house forever. Think of it as me making it possible for you to enter into the Holy of Holies now and forever. That is what's happening there. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 4. Jesus says, You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, so Thomas wants to know, How are we going to get to where you're going? How are we going to get to the Father's house, to this Holy of Holies? And I love Jesus' answer. It is so wonderfully simple, right? He doesn't give them directions. He doesn't give them a list of rules to follow. He just says, I am the way. Which is kind of like saying, Philip, you can't get there. You can't do it. But I can do it. I can be the way. I can open the way to the Holy of Holies. That's why I'm going to the cross. And then Jesus adds something that I know can sound kind of offensive to modern ears. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, I hear him saying two primary things. Number one, No one can really know what God is like except through what he's about to do on the cross. No one can really know what God is like except through what he's about to do on the cross. And secondly, no one can live forever in God's house except through what he is about to do on the cross. In the kingdom of heaven, no one is going to say, I'm here because of Buddha's Eightfold Path. And no one is going to say, I'm here because of the five pillars that the Prophet Muhammad taught. No one's even going to say, I'm here because of the Law of Moses. People are going to say, ultimately the reason I'm here is because of the blood of the Lamb. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. I got here because of that, because he paid the price for my sins and opened the way to the holy of holies. And and I, I believe people will all say that, whether they believed, whether they lived before Jesus' ministry or after. In the kingdom of heaven, everyone will know this is how we got here. Now I know that what I just said could sound disrespectful to people of other 
religious traditions. And I do not want to be disrespectful. But I also have to respect the significance of the Son of God dying on a cross. I can't imagine that God would become incarnate and suffer and die on a cross just to create one more path among many to be reconciled to God. I mean, if I were God and I knew other paths were just as effective, I would say, you know, I think that I'm just going to keep sending prophets, messages, rules, and, and prophecies, and philosophies, and that sort of thing. No need to get my hands dirty, right? No need to get them pierced. It's a lot easier that way. I mean, and that works for people getting to the Father. That works for bringing people into the Holy of Holies. Let's just send another prophet, send another philosophy, send another law. That, will, will get, that gets the job done. That's what I would say. The only way that the cross makes any sense of, at all is if it is the most important event in all of history, right? It's either the most significant event in all of history or it's pointless. Right? If people are going to be reconciled to God, the cross is necessary. That is what Jesus is saying. This has to happen. And if people are really going to know what God is like, the cross is necessary. The cross reveals God more than anything else. What else could display the love of God more than that? Where else could we go to discover that than the cross? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Some people will say, I'm sure we've all heard this, maybe some of us have said it ourselves, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He wasn't God, but he was a good moral teacher. But passages like this should make it very hard for us to say that. I remember when I was in campus ministry, I used to uh, talk to students, and we had these little cards that we used that represented different views of who Jesus was. And one of the most popular cards that people would pick is the one that just says he was a good, good moral teacher. The one that said he was Lord, that he was God, a lot that would not get picked as often, I think, as that one. But if you look at what Jesus says here, the essence of it is, if you have seen me, you have seen God. 
And that's not the kind of thing that good moral teachers say. You know, the way C.S. Lewis put it is, if we look at what Jesus said in the Gospels, and we assume that the Gospels are accurate in reporting what Jesus said, we're kind of forced to decide who Jesus is, and we really only have three options. We can say that he's a liar. We can say that he's a lunatic, that he's crazy. Or we can say that he's Lord. This is what's sometimes called the trilemma. Lord, liar, lunatic. But the option that a lot of people want to pick, that he was a good moral teacher, that kind of safe option, that isn't really an option. Because good moral teachers don't lie, and they don't teach delusions of grandeur, right? If you have seen me, you have seen God, right? If somebody was saying that sort of thing, we're, we're not going to say, oh, they're, they're good, 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 good teacher, good moral teacher, right? We either have to say, well, they're either lying, they're crazy, or they're telling the truth. Now, if you're having trouble making up your mind, is Jesus a liar, a lord, or a lunatic? Um, let me suggest something to you. Look at what Jesus tells Philip, right? He says, believe me when I say this. Believe me when I say that the Father is in, in me and, and, and I am in the Father, that, that we are one. And then he says, well, and if you can't believe just what I'm saying, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. In other words, examine my life. Look at the things I've taught. Look at the way I've conducted myself. Look at the miracles that I've performed. Look at all that, and you will see the evidence that the Father, God, is in me, and I am in him, that we are one. And I think Jesus invites us all to examine his life, in his teaching, right? And then to see, does it feel more natural to call him liar, lunatic, or Lord? Jesus says, examine, look at me. You know, over the last few months here at St. Paul's, we examined a lot of Jesus' teaching through the parables. Um, you know, if you're on the fence, that's something you can do is re-examine all that. Hopefully when you came in here this morning, uh, you received a handout that I put together that summarizes the, the lessons that um, are in the parables, or at least the lessons that, that I take from them. Um, and so I encourage you, look at that. Look at what he said. Examine it. Ask yourself, does this make more sense to be coming from a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? And the greatest work of all that we should be examining is the cross, right? Jesus dying for us. People with delusions of grandeur will often make other people die for them, but they don't usually die for others, which is what Jesus did. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses that we've looked at today, and um, it's hard to kind of summarize them all with one, one big idea, one theme. But if I were to say, what is the, the theme, the idea that runs through all of this? 
It's all about the significance of the cross. What Jesus is about to do, what's about to happen. You know, for centuries, Christians have worn crosses around their necks and displayed them in their churches and in their homes. But what does the cross really mean? Do we, is it like just a good luck charm for us? Is it some sort of tribal marker? What Jesus says here is what we should think of when we think of the cross. What, 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 what should we think of? Well, the cross is where the glory of God is revealed. The cross is where the love of God is on display. The cross is our example of how we're called to love, what we're called to be like as the church. And the cross is what opens our access to God's house, to the holy of holies, to our eternal home in heaven. That's the kind of thing that we should think of when we put that cross on around our neck or when we look at the crosses in our churches. If we are Christians, there shouldn't be a day that goes by where we don't think about the cross and all that the cross means. Every day, the cross should shape our understanding of, of God and how we're called to live. And as we do that, we will feel ourselves entering into the presence of God, entering into that holy of holies, living in his presence, and getting a, fort, a foretaste of that eternal home that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have prepared a place for us with you forever. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to do that, to do all that was necessary to reconcile us to you. We thank you for the incredible display of, of who God is that we have through you. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, a sense of being brought into your presence, being brought into that holy of holies. Lord, we thank you for making a way. And help us, Lord, even though it is so hard to reflect some of that kind of love that you've shown to us, to each other, and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.